I heard it is National Ice Cream Day, so you should look into that. I don't know if that's 100% true, but it came up on one of my social media feeds this morning. On to other matters. What is the meaning of life? For centuries, philosophers have twisted over this very query as though it was ultimately unanswerable. But God has answered this question quite clearly in a book that is too seldom read and too often misunderstood. The book is Ecclesiastes. It's found roughly in the middle of your Bibles. Ecclesiastes can be enigmatic to the casual reader because for most of the book, it sounds incredibly cynical, even unbiblical. And this is because for most of the book, the author looks at life from merely an earthly perspective. What do I mean? Well, the writer describes what life looks like without God. And he finds futility ultimately in all of his pursuits, no matter how successfully he is able to pursue them. These endeavors do not last, and they do not satisfy. Our preacher calls this perspective life under the sun. It's an important phrase in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. He sprinkles this phrase some 29 times in 27 verses in nine of the book's 12 chapters. But if we wade patiently through the totality of the teacher's argument, if we listen attentively to the repeated refrain echoed softly some seven times amongst this sea of cynicism, and if we heed the grand conclusion found in the final two verses of this message, we shall see that the answer to the enigma of the question of the meaning of life is actually quite clear. From Ecclesiastes, we learn that the key to joy and hope and, and peace in a world of monotony and vanity and futility is not only possible, it is God's design, indeed it is God's desire for His people. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of the Lord to roughly the middle of your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn our hearts to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite You this morning as the Sovereign Lord of the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith, the very architect of all that is right and righteous and true, we ask that You would please speak to us from Your Holy Scriptures today. That You would give us a clarity and a perspicuity in our understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. That we wouldn't see that the meaning of life is elusive, but rather we would see that it's conclusive. And that we would see that amongst the monotony, futility of life, that there is purpose and peace and joy and hope for those who understand where we stand when we put things in a proper perspective. We pray that this would be clear to us today and that the message of Ecclesiastes, even the small, soft echo of the seven statements, 
would not be lost on us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, we have 12 chapters to cover in one single slender Sunday. So we will only be able to look at selected passages within the book, but I encourage you this week, indeed this month, if it's been a while since you've been through Ecclesiastes, use this as a launching point for your own marination and saturation in this powerful passage. The first question we must consider when we look at Ecclesiastes, it's a very important question, is who wrote this book? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Now think about this for a second. Who would be uh, so bold as to presume that they are so wise that they could give the definitive and indeed universal answer to an age-old enigma? Ecclesiastes lists the writer as simply the teacher. It's a rather cryptic title. What do we know about the teacher? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 1, and he says a little bit. He says, The words of the teacher, Son of David, King in Jerusalem. So, this teacher is a son of David, and he is king specifically in Jerusalem. If you skip on down to verse 12, the Bible says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then verse 13, he says, This king devoted himself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. Now flip down to chapter 2 and verse 4. Chapter 2 and verse 4. This king in Jerusalem, this son of David, this individual who ponders Proverbs, says, I undertook great projects. I built houses, plural, for myself, and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man and I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Now I want you to jump ahead to chapter 12 and verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 9 because he's going to tell us a little bit more about who he is. Ecclesiastes 12.9 says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many Proverbs. In fact, we have a whole book of Proverbs that was written by a very wise person. Are you starting to see a pattern? Friends, there is only one Hebrew king who had such a long and prosperous and industrious reign to fit the bill, as Scripture says in our book today. There is only one Israeli sovereign so notable for his great learning, so famous for his numerous building projects, so conspicuous for his rapacious avarice that led to the acquisition of 700 wives and 300 concubines in order to live out in the most literal way imaginable Ecclesiastes 210s I denied myself nothing my eyes desired and I refused my heart 
no pleasure. Friends, there is only one biblical monarch who can incongruously and yet simultaneously refuse his heart no pleasure and yet still be known as the wise teacher who imparts knowledge to the people by pursuing, pondering, and putting together the book of Proverbs. And that would be King Solomon, wouldn't it? No one else fits the bill. So if Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, when did he write it? Good question. Based on what the teacher had already pursued, most conclude that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes towards the very end of his life. After chasing many promising vanities and finding them all initially thrilling, but ultimately unfulfilling. And so if this is the case, if Solomon writes this at the very end of his life, surveying all of his life, then Ecclesiastes would be written about 930 B.C. Now, Solomonic authorship of this book is very important because Solomon has unique credibility, doesn't he? In answering our question, what is the meaning of life? Solomon is not only intellectually capable to handle this philosophical enigma because the Bible says Solomon was the world's wisest man. But Solomon is also practically and experientially uniquely capable because Solomon's knowledge is not just theoretical. Solomon actually tested these options to an extent that perhaps no other human being has had the time, the resources, and the opportunity to so pursue. Let me show you what I mean. Solomon was powerful. And some people have been powerful in history, but few to the extent of being an absolute monarch. Some have been wealthy, but few as wealthy as a king at the very apex of his civilization's influence in world history. Uh, Some have been studly, but few to the tune of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Some have been scholarly, but but few proverbially and Solomonically so. So much so that we go to a book largely written by just his pen called Proverbs. Um, Solomon is uniquely capable to be the human author of the definitive answer to the age-old enigma, what is the meaning of life? But friends, I want you to remember that Solomon is only one half of the book's dual authorship. Because all Scripture is theopneutos. It is God-breathed. And no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Ecclesiastes is uniquely able to answer the age-old question of the meaning of life because Ecclesiastes' ultimate author is not a fallible mortal, but rather the fount of all that is knowable and the source of wisdom itself. And that, my friends, is Yahweh, the one true God. 
So God gives Solomon some latitude in crafting his message. He does it in a very artful way, and in a way that we can sometimes miss his meaning if we're not careful. Solomon starts his argument in verse 2 of chapter 1 by saying this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, the word meaningless is a translation of hevel, a Hebrew word that conveys the idea that something is fleeting, it's transitory, it's ultimately unfulfilling, unsatisfying. And so Solomon looks at our life's work and he sees its futility. Verse 3, what does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, and the earth remains forever. Our our work doesn't lead to lasting anything. And then he looks at our world, and he sees its monotony. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. All the streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. He looks at our urges, and he sees their insatiability. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. He looks at our inventions and observes that they are not truly new and paradigm shifting, but they're really kind of slight, even trite. And even those who discover them will not be long remembered for their service. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already. Long ago. It was here before our time. And there is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those follow. Now we may think, now wait a minute, (laughs) this depressive preacher got it all wrong. Uh, Explorers discovered the new world. Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Steve Jobs gave us iPhones with iTunes and AirPods so I can tune you out when I stand waiting for my latte at Starbucks. I don't have to engage in chit-chat anymore. Even if the AirPods are off, you don't know that, I can pretend at least. That's new, isn't it? I mean, that's a new thing in world history. But friends, you need to understand in Solomon's statement, Solomon is not speaking there as a scientist and with his perspective of invention. He's speaking as a historian when he notes there is nothing new under the sun. Of course there are new discoveries, but what he's saying is the overall experience is not new. You see, Columbus discovered the New World, but we know that the Vikings got there before he did. 
And who did they find when they landed? The Native Americans who wondered why it took the Europeans so long to get here. So, here you have a discovery, but it wasn't new. The thrill of the discovery was new. It was new to those who discovered it, but it had always been true. And whatever the endeavor, you know, let's take the idea of exploration, the exhilaration of exploration. It's been well trod. Marco Polo did it in the 13th century. Neil Armstrong did it in the 20th. Elon Musk is doing it in the 21st. The experience of the exhilaration of exploration is not new. Hmm. How about the idea, well, this is a game changer, right? They love that tra- phrase today, this is a game changer. So we hold up our smartphones and they say there's more technology in this smartphone than, than what it took to uh, take a man to the moon when it comes to computing power. Surely that's new. Well, yes and no. It's not really new in the sense that some technology has brought uh, sweeping change because we've experienced sweeping change. The guy who figured out you could make fire, that made life a lot different, didn't it? Uh, The person who decided that you could take wind and use that to create a windmill to grind grain so you didn't have to grind it yourself, that was a game changer. The person who said we can heat water and make steam and then we can move ships across the ocean or trains across the nation. Do you understand? There's really nothing new under the sun. A game changer it may be, but verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, that is something new? It was here already, long ago, it was here before our time. What he's saying is that Yesterday's breakthrough becomes tomorrow's expectation. Most inventors are not remembered, and those that we do remember, let's think of two men, Rudolf Diesel, who gave us the diesel engine, and Thomas Edison, who gave us these incandescent lights and all that. Okay, what do we think of when we turn on our truck or our generator? Do we go, Rudolf Diesel? We don't think of him at all. When you go to your truck and you turn on the headlights at night, you go, Thomas Edison. You don't think of him at all. Why? The Bible says, verse 11, you tell me if it's true. Because there's no remembrance of old men. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who fall. There are people today killing themselves to make a mark in this world And should Jesus tarry three generations from now, they'll barely be able to find Him in a history book. Solomon is about to make the meat of his argument. We're just in chapter 1. He kind of understands the world better than most of us, doesn't he? Solomon is about to make the meat of his argument on the meaning of life because he's going to spend several chapters surveying and then excoriating all the lesser alternatives we can pursue under the sun. Think for a moment about the things people have built their lives around, hoping to find fulfillment in that thing. The ideologies and isms motivating folks to get up every day. And so let's just survey some of those, because he's going to do that in the next 11 chapters. Some people have tried Epicureanism, seeking fulfillment in, in food and in drink. Well, that'll make me happy. Uh, Some try industry, seeking fulfillment in progress and expansion. 
Uh, Some try hedonism, seeking fulfillment in drugs and sex and pleasure. Some try consumerism, seeking fulfillment in the accumulation of things. Some try intellectualism, seeking fulfillment in knowing more than before, and perhaps knowing more than anyone else on a particular subject who's ever lived. Some people try politics, and they try fame. They seek fulfillment in their power, or or in their popularity within a society. But try as we might, every single one of those things cannot provide ultimate fulfillment. Listen to chapter 2. Chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He was going to start a journey for many years of his long life to see if anything could satisfy. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Epicureanism feeds the stomach. Solomon says it doesn't feed the soul. Wine, the Bible says, sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. Experientially, we know it can make a dull companion lively. It can make a tragedy into levity. It can make an idiot into a philosopher. Stay till last call. But it can only do that temporarily. And then the frog of grog dissipates and a hangover ensues. Okay, what about the other side of food and drink in Epicureanism? Friends, the most sumptuous meal ultimately only leaves behind its calories. I've tried. (laughs) If Epicureanism could truly satisfy then every mother's desire would be for her child to grow up to be the most corpulent alcoholic on the planet. But I've never met a mother that wants that for their child. Okay, so what about industry? Hedonism and consumerism. What about those three? I want you to look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Chapter 4 and verse 2. We're going to look at industry, hedonism, and consumerism. Chapter 4 and verse 2, Solomon says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I uh, made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I, I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me, and I I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart 
took delight in all my work, and that was the reward for my labor. And yet, when I surveyed, he stopped and looked at it all, when he wasn't just busy doing stuff, and he thought, how is this doing and fulfilling me? Verse 11, and yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You never catch the wind, my friend. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, industry was attempted, and friends, industry was accomplished on a vast personal and national scale in the life of Solomon. And yet, it did not satisfy. Why? Because even if you own the Waldorf Astoria, someone else owns the Beverly Hilton. And you will chafe at that reality. Industry does not ultimately satisfy. It is a chasing after the wind. Now, what about hedonism? Well, let's just think about that for a second. Hedonism is you know, seeking fulfillment in drugs and sex and, 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 and whatever brings me pleasure. If hedonism truly satisfied, no celebrity would ever voluntarily check themselves in for chemical or sexual addiction problems. Why? Because they'd be so satisfied. Because they have access to what we think is so satisfying. And yet, they routinely do. Interesting. What about consumerism? If consumerism was ultimately satisfying, then Imelda Marcos, do you remember her, the Philippine dictator's wife? Uh, she wouldn't have had to scour the high streets of every major city in the world that filling her, her presidential palace with rooms from floor to ceiling of shoes and yet never having enough shoes. Because it's like drinking seawater. With greed, the more you drink, the thirstier you become. No, friends. <laughs> The Bible is not saying these things offer no pleasure. Clearly they offer some pleasure or we wouldn't pursue them. What the Scriptures is saying is that if you look to these lesser things to give you ultimate and lasting pleasure, they cannot. No more than the most satisfying swig of cold water on the hottest summer day can make you so permanently satisfied that you never thirst again. The best water still needs to be replenished. Well, that's not entirely true. The best water under the sun. But friends, there's a water under heaven that Jesus calls living water. And He gives us that, which is Himself, that we would be truly satisfied. Solomon admits that these pursuits provide temporary Fleeting pleasure. Listen again to Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. So there was a temporary surge of pleasure in these pursuits, but it was not a lasting pleasure. After the elation of acquisition of verse 10, comes the letdown of verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, 
everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Well, perhaps this is because Solomon only reviewed the lower, the lesser, the more animalistic instincts of man. There was a 19th century philosopher. His name was John Stuart Mill. And he argued, you know, if we pursued the higher and not the lower instincts, if we pursued the intellectual pleasures over the mere carnal pleasures, happiness would no longer be elusive. It would be found. The Bible says that's not true. The higher pleasures in Mill's mind proved ultimately unsatisfying to Solomon as well. I want you to listen to verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider the higher pleasure of wisdom and also madness and folly. And what more can the king's successor do than has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize the same fate overtakes them both, the wise man and the fool. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man must also die. So, let me just ask you this question. If scholarship were ultimately satisfying, people would cue to hear Einstein's theory of universal happiness. But he doesn't have one. He has one on universal relativity. Because scholarship doesn't lead to lasting pleasure. If scholarship were ultimately satisfying, the bookworm would be the most revered figure in all of our stories. And the geek would always get the girl in real life. Is that how it works? Ecclesiastes 12.12, Solomon writes something that legions of students can happily affirm. It is this. My students loved this in Africa when I taught at the Bible college. Ecclesiastes 12.12, of the making of many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. (laughs) Yeah, the student's favorite verse. Okay, if the higher pleasure of higher learning is not the answer, what about the higher pleasure of work? Some people, particularly here in the Northeast, particularly in New Jersey, particularly in the New York City metropolitan area, we exhaust ourselves believing work will ultimately satisfy. And so we forego our vacations. The number of people that have weeks of vacation who routinely do not take it. Very interesting. And not only do we forego our vacation believing that our work will make our life better, but when we do take time off, uh, our mind is still sitting at the office though our bottom might be at little Johnny's recital. I want you to listen to Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 17. Ecclesiastes 2.17 if you think work is going to make it all work out. Ecclesiastes 2.17 So I hated life. Anybody winning at work and hating life while you're doing it? So I hated life because the work 
that is done under the sun was so grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. You leave a legacy so somebody else can do whatever with it. He will have control over all the work to which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. And this too is meaningless. Verse 20, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, skill, and knowledge, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. That would be Junior taking over the company you built. This too is meaningless. And a great misfortune. Verse 22, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All of his days, his work is pain and grief, and even at night his mind does not rest. He's thinking about work when he's not working, isn't he? And this too is meaningless. Now friends, we're rapidly running out of isms, ideologies, and potential pursuits, aren't we? We have struck off Epicureanism, both of food and of drink. We've, we've struck off hedonism, both chemical and sexual. But we've struck off consumerism of all stripes. Scholarship in the search of wisdom or the attainment of knowledge. Industry, be it personal or national. Uh, and workaholism. What's left? Well, perhaps politics. Uh, perhaps climbing the social ladder. But perhaps the attainment of fame so everyone knows your name, right? Now, many folks of meager means, many folks lower on the social ladder have been utterly convinced that social ascendancy is the key to happiness. So let's try it out. Turn to Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 13. The Bible says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take a warning. See, one man has little in the ladder and the other man is at the pinnacle. But power, prominence, and prestige, being king, are no cure for old age or foolish thinking. Have you ever watched the news and seen some decrepit dictator fulminating spent ideas and how everyone's sort of mocking him as he wears his regalia like he's a 19-star general. Yeah. Better the poor but wise youth than the foolish old king. Equally, let's pretend you're that youth. And that youth comes from the periphery. You could come from prison. You could come from poverty. And yet somehow you ascend to the palace. Everybody's still not going to revere you along the way. Listen to verse 14. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship. It's about as low as you can go and as high as you can climb in their society. Or he may have been born in poverty within the kingdom, but now he's king. Verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun, they followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before him. Now listen to this. But those who came later were not pleased with his successor. Friends, the world can build statues for your accomplishments, and some other generation will tear those 
down. It's almost like the Bible's relevant to the moment, isn't it? If only there was something new under the sun. This, this book plays to today because it was written to be a timeless word. And that's why it gives a timely word. And that's why we should be in this word. Amen? But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Friend, if you live for approval of others, you will never find that approval to be universal. Everyone won't love you. And you will never find it to be permanent. Those who love you today may not tomorrow. And so politics and popularity are ultimately unfulfilling. What about the golden rule? You know, the New Jersey version. He who has the gold makes the rules. You know that one, right? Sean, won't riches make us happy? Well, think about the number of high earners in Manhattan who sit on psychiatrists' couches, heavily medicated, unable to sleep at night, with panic attacks and anxiety. It would seem to indicate the answer to that question is clearly no. I want you to think about the number of lottery winners. You've all been sitting in uh, isolation, and you've been forced to watch a lot of Netflix and a lot of cable TV. There's not been a whole lot else to do. And you'll, every once in a while, there'll be a special about people who won the lottery. And it always seems to lend in tragedy. Like, they're always worse off. That doesn't mean the lottery's bad, but what we do with the found money can be a problem. The sordid tales so routinely chronicled in our cable specials seem to indicate you can have a pile of money and not make life any better. Turn to Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. Here's what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You see, if you have no boat, you'll be jealous of the person with the rowboat. And if you have a rowboat, you'll want the sailboat. And if you have a sailboat, you'll want the yacht. And if you have a yacht, you want the one the prince from Dubai has that's bigger than yours at the marina. And if you have that, then I guess you want the marina. Right? Because the old James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, is very true when it comes to stuff. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. <laughs> so you got more money, you're going to have more friends asking for some of that money. <laughs> and what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Look, unless you're going to Scrooge McDuck and try to swim in the gold coins, a pile of gold coins is not that amazing. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. Do you remember what it was like when you had no money and you worked all day digging ditches when you were first starting out, and how well you slept at night, and then you climbed the top of the hill and you're worried about staying on top of the hill, and now you can't sleep anymore at night? Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Friends, naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. 
He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry with his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All of his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Have you ever met a miserable, wealthy person? And the person who cleans up as the night janitor sings a song of praise at three in the morning when she cleans his toilet in that office. Interesting who has the song of praise and who doesn't. So what then is the message of Ecclesiastes? What is man's only hope for ultimate meaning and lasting satisfaction? It is revealed at the crescendo of this treatise. If you would turn with me to the final two lines of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now, all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the matter. After surveying all of life under the sun, here it is. The wisest man's perfect conclusion endorsed by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether for good or for evil. And so, revering the Lord and walking in His will is the key to having real meaning in your life. If you put the Lord first, then you can enjoy the many simple pleasures of life in the present. Instead of constantly dwelling on the past or pining for some better future. That's the key. That's the answer. You see, life under the sun is futile and it's brutal. It's monotonous. It's meaningless. And friends, it's full of injustice. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 16. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 16. Because life under the sun is futile and brutal, it is monotonous, meaningless, and full of injustice. There is a reason so many people are so vociferously unhappy, because in a broken world, there is brokenness. Ecclesiastes 3.16, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. You see, life under the sun is undeniably unjust. Flip down to chapter 4. Chapter 4. Again I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, how they had no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better both is he who's not yet been, who's not seen the evil that's under the sun. And I saw that all labor and achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor, and this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He's reached a point where he says it's better to be dead than alive. In fact, it's better to never have been born than have been here at all. And some of you have felt that. That's what it feels like when you chase after something that cannot satisfy. It will not bring satisfaction. So life under the sun is oppressive. 
The powerful are petty and punitive, and they pursue their own advancement to their neighbor's detriment. Anybody seen that? I have. Sometimes the dead seem better off than the living. And and many times it seems that envy is the fuel driving the engine of toil, and, and that that fuel so overcomes the operator that it denies him the joy of his industry. Skip down to chapter 6 and verse 7. Chapter 6 and verse 7. 6, 7. 6, 7. All man's efforts are for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Appetites, my friends, are never satisfied. Cravings always lead to strivings, but no amount of succeeding ever seems to quell those cravings. Well, now this treatise on the meaning of life contains some some pretty pessimistic stuff at this point. Perhaps the nihilism of Nietzsche and the band Nine Inch Nails is the sad reality of humanity. And yet, Solomon wants you to know, the Holy Spirit wants you to know, the Bible wants you to know that life is only oppressive and depressive when viewed from the limited vantage point of life under the sun. That's where it's depressing. Unlike the nihilists who say life is meaningless, life under God is not futile. I want you to listen to Ecclesiastes 9.4. Turn to Ecclesiastes 9.4. Ecclesiastes 9.4. In the middle of the book of all this pessimism and this sea of cynicism, he says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. You see, if you put God at the center, you can start to enjoy the periphery. But, if you put the periphery at the center, those lesser pursuits will be perilous, they will be fruitless, and life will become meaningless. It will become a chasing after the wind. I want you to listen carefully, though, to the repeated refrain echoed softly some seven times within these Scriptures. Most people miss this when they read Ecclesiastes. If they read Ecclesiastes, they understand that you want to have life under God, not life under the sun. And that is how is the key to meaning and purpose. But they also, most Christians miss these seven refrains. And God doesn't want you to miss them. So listen here. About how we can enjoy the periphery if God is the center. Listen. Turn to Ecclesiastes 2.24. It's the first time this whisper happens in the book. Ecclesiastes 2.24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Meaning, put God in the right place and you can enjoy what you eat and what you drink and what you do. Turn to Ecclesiastes 3.12. Next chapter. 3.12. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
Now go about 10 verses later. 3.22 So I saw there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work. Because that is his lot. Turn to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 18. Then I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, instead of being jealous of the other guy's thing, to accept, look at all I have, and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. That's an important verse there, verse 20. Friends, God repeatedly advises us to enjoy the simple pleasures of your table and your toil. God has graciously designed us as human beings to have to take daily breaks, to stop, and and to have a meal. Our body needs sustenance. And God gave us taste buds that that would be fun. He didn't have to give us taste buds. He could have just said you need fuel and we all eat unsweetened oatmeal and it's like the glop in the Matrix movie and that's it. But God said, I'm going to give you this simple pleasure of food. And I want you to enjoy it. I want you to enjoy the simple pleasure of work. God gives some of us a measure of wealth. He says, enjoy it. Now don't make it God, but enjoy it. If God gives you possessions, enjoy them. Possess your possessions. Don't be possessed by your possessions. Here's what the Bible's not saying. The Bible's not saying austerity and levity are supposed to be conjoined. Friends, austerity and levity uh, are are on different ends of the poles, and and the Bible's not asking you to square that circle. The Bible's also saying uh, that morbid introspection will keep us from happiness. He he says at the end of verse 20 on chapter 5, that, that that man who's enjoying the simple pleasures of the day, he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Morbid introspection will keep us from happiness, whereas the simple enjoyment of the blessing of the moment, living fully engaged in the blessing of the now from the hand of the Lord, that is the recipe for joy in this broken world. I know some people, <laughs> you know some people, who always ruminate on a supposedly better past and they utterly miss the joys of the present because they so pine for the past. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. Hey, you know what? The good old days are often a product of bad memories and good imaginations. Yesterday had its problems. If you ever read a journal, not just a remembrance, but a journal where they actually talk about stuff happening in real time, you're going to find that yesterday had its problems too. But we easily whitewash them in the fuzzy hues of our remembrances. It's one of the beautiful things our memory does. It plays tricks. (laughs) That's fine. Other people will miss the joys of today because we're constantly waiting for some better tomorrow when we're then going to actually be happy. We're never happy today, but if we ever got to there, then we'd be happy. And that's a lie. Turn to Ecclesiastes 11.9. 
And let's pierce that lie of the perpetual future happiness that's perpetually in the future, so we're perpetually never happy. Ecclesiastes 11.9, be happy, young man. Not old man. Be happy, young man. While you are young, not in the future, right now. Let your heart give you joy in the now, in the days of your now, in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Live your life under God's authority and enjoy the moment while God's giving you blessings. So then, banish anxiety. Instead of worrying constantly about tomorrow, banish anxiety for your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. Enjoy the now because tomorrow is not promised any of us. Now turn to Ecclesiastes 8.15. Ecclesiastes 8.15. The Holy Spirit says, So I commend the enjoyment of life. Christians ought not be constant grumps who constantly are unhappy. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be glad. Then joy will accompany him in all of his work, all the days of his life, God has given him. The person who understands my life is a gift, God gives me breath, I got up today, today is a blessing from the Lord, one day I'll be in eternity, right now I'm right here, I can be miserable or I can be joyful, I can be grateful and thankful or I can be anxious and afraid. You follow? You have an option. What option are you choosing to be pursuing? If you wanted to put this in more modern parlance, we need to take a page from the hobbits of Tolkien's Shire. They, were, they had this ability. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, you, you understand that the hobbits had the ability to be pleasantly contented with family, with fellowship, with an honest day's work in the field, with a satisfying meal, and the warm flicker of a fire crackling in the family hearth. And they were enormously satisfied in the simple pleasures of life. But we often live like the dwarves. Always expending our energy, striving for just a little bit more gold until we unleash something that consumes our whole world. They unleash something terrible in their endless greed. Friends, joy, lasting, fulfilling, meaningful joy comes from God. It's under heaven, not under the sun. We put God at the center and we cease our, our strivings for, for wealth and notoriety and scholarship or the next big thing. And instead, if we invest our best in the simple pleasures God is giving us today, our family, our work, the food on our table, you're going to find that joy is not elusive and life is not meaningless. Listen to our final text today. It's Ecclesiastes 9.7. If you would turn to Ecclesiastes 9.7. It's the last one I'm going to make you turn to. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, Go, eat your food with gladness. And drink your wine with a joyful heart. Three fundamentalists just died. For it, is, for it is now that God favors you in what you do. God is blessing you right now. In a pandemic, you have a family next to you. You have air conditioning when it's a zillion degrees outside. You're going to get in a car that starts that has air conditioning. 
You're going to have a shore that's not that far away. One day, you're going to have skiing again. You're going to worship without a mask again. One day. But right now, there are things to be thankful for. Go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for it is now that God favors what you do. Don't live in the past. Don't wait for the present. Enjoy God in the moment. Always be clothed in white. That is, be a godly person. Honor God in how you behave. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. That is, be, be ready to be that servant and ambassador of the, uh, of the King of Kings. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. She's a good gift from God. Whatever your hand finds to do. Today it's pulling weeds in the garden because I can't go to this place. Tomorrow it's picking tomatoes because I can't go to that place. You can focus on I can't go to that place or you can really enjoy tomatoes. But only you get to decide that. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would please recalibrate us. Please help us remember that even if we win the rat race, we still are just rats. Help us to not miss the simple pleasures of a meal together. Good food, good company, and a good crackling fire. Thank You for taste buds. Thank You for an array of flavors we can discover that grain tastes a certain way. Fresh, it tastes another way. Roasted, it tastes another way. Buttered, and we thank You for all of that. Lord, help us to enjoy the youthful exuberance of our children who can be unendingly satisfied with weeds in the yard by blowing away the dandelion flower. Help us to enjoy our grandchildren for they grow up too fast and these seasons will be gone forever. So help us to enjoy them today. Help us to put You at the center and the lesser at the periphery. Help us to enjoy those lesser things without confusing them as ultimate things. May we instead fear You and keep Your commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. May we listen to our Lord and seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to us. May we extend the grace of the Gospel that Jesus might be high and lifted up, that You might draw all men unto Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and Amen.